Please stand for the reading of God's word. Our scripture focus is found in 1 Samuel chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came to Jonathan and asked, What have I done? What did I do wrong? How have I sinned against your father so that he wants to take my life? Jonathan said to him, no, you won't die. Listen, my father doesn't do anything great or small without telling me. So why would he hide this matter from me? This can't be true. But David said, your father certainly knows that I have found favor with you. He has said, Jonathan must not know of this or else he will be grieved. David also swore, as surely as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, there is but a step between me and death. Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I will do for you. So David told him, look, tomorrow is the new moon and I'm supposed to sit down and eat with the king. Instead, let me go and I'll hide in the countryside for the next two nights. If your father misses me at all, say, David urgently requested my permission to go quickly to his hometown, Bethlehem, for an annual sacrifice there involving the whole clan. If he says, good, then your servant is safe. But if he becomes angry, you will know he has evil intentions. Deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought me into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I have done anything wrong, then kill me yourself. Why take me to your father? No, Jonathan responded. If I ever find out my father has evil intentions against you, wouldn't I tell you about it? So David asked Jonathan, Who will tell me if your father answers you harshly? He answered, Come on, let's go out to the countryside. So both of them went out to the countryside. By the Lord, the God of Israel, I will sound out my father by this time tomorrow or the next day. If I find out that he is favorable towards you, will I not send for you and tell you? If my father intends to bring evil on you, may God punish Jonathan and do so severely if I do not tell you and send you away so you may leave safely. May the Lord be with you just as he was with my father. If I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household, not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. Then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him, because he loved him as he loved himself. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church. My name is Stephen Searles. I serve as the church planter in residence here at the Hallows, and I am 
really excited to be with you guys to get to open the word. I'm also very excited to not have my mask on because it's super hot. Uh, so I am going to enjoy some face air uh, right now. Um, but guys, I am a huge, huge movie buff. And one of my favorite things um, about movies is friendships involved in those films. And we, we have, through cinema history, some amazing examples of like really great friendship. And I, I want to share just a couple of those with you. Uh, the first one I want to share is, uh, is Bill and Ted. Uh, if you guys have never seen the Bill and Ted movies, you are missing out. They are incredible. They travel through time, uh, and they, are, uh, they want to be excellent to everyone. So I love Bill and Ted. They're incredible friends. Uh, then for maybe, maybe movies aren't your thing, so maybe literature slash movies are your thing, so maybe these sets of friends will be uh, more recognizable to you. Sam and Frodo, um, I don't know why uh, Frodo is the hero of the story, because we all know Sam truly is the hero of that story. Uh, he is an awesome friend to Frodo the entire time through. Um, then maybe for some of you that are a, a little younger, maybe feeling nostalgic, uh, we've got these friends, uh, Todd and Copper. Uh, you know, I love that Fox and the Hound film. It was one of my favorites when I was younger. Uh, Todd and Copper, you know, two unlikely friends that come together to be great friends. Uh, we've got another set of friends, uh, and on the animated uh, vein is uh, Buzz and Woody, right? Though, again, unlikely friends, uh, didn't start out as friends, ended up coming through, and, and uh, that was really awesome. But the friends that I really want to talk about, uh, the ones that I, I would love to, to kind of draw some parallels for is Forrest Gump and his friend Bubba. Now, if you've ever seen the film Forrest Gump, you remember that Forrest and Bubba meet on the way to boot camp. After uh, being drafted, they meet on the bus, and Bubba and Forrest become fast friends. And, and Bubba is great. Bubba is really into shrimp, right? And so he tells multiple ways that you can uh, make shrimp. And by multiple, I mean, like, it seems like hundreds because as the, as the scenes progress, we see over and over that you can boil it, you can fry it, you can put it in gumbo, you can put it in jambalaya, you can do this and that, and you can do all of these things with shrimp. And Bubba is a big shrimp fan. And Forrest sits there and listens. And Forrest encourages him. And Forrest and Bubba form a friendship that was incredible to watch because you have a white man in the 60s from Alabama and a black man becoming friends. Unlikely pairing, but they show friendship. And their friendship continues to grow and grow and grow. And they both prove to be great friends to each other. So if you haven't guessed, friendship is what we're going to talk about today. You see, in 1 Samuel chapter 20, we have an example of two really great friends, Jonathan and David. Now, anytime Jonathan shows up in the story, Jonathan seems to be kind of the guy that steals the show. Jonathan is a shining example of what it, likes, what it looks like to be courageous. He's a shining example of what it looks like to do what is right, to be a good friend. And he shows a shining example of what it looks like to fulfill these words that Jesus would say many years in the future. Jesus, in the biography that we have of him by a guy named Luke, 
says, if anyone wants to follow me, they must hate their mother and their father and their brother and their sister. They must hate these people, these family members, in order to be a true disciple of Jesus and to follow him. Now, we're not sure that Jesus was thinking specifically of Jonathan when he was saying these words, but it's very possible. Because what we see in this story is that Jonathan is pitted against his family, his father, and his friend, David. He's pitted against choosing Saul, who is the current king, and David, who is the chosen king. He really is put in a place between following God or following his family. And today, that would be a hard choice. But in the ancient Near East, it's even a harder choice. Because everything is about family, especially when we're talking about royalty. Royalty is a, a line that is passed down and down. It's a title. It's an honor that is bestowed from one generation to the next. And so Jonathan is actually choosing not just between his friend and his father. He is choosing between his future and what God has already put forth as a promise. And so we find Jonathan in a very difficult situation. So if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to open it up to 1 Samuel chapter 20. It's in the front part of your Bible. If you just start kind of flipping through, look for those ones and twos. You'll see 1 Samuel there. We'll be in chapter 20. What we really see laid out through this example of friendship is one really simple idea that I would love for us to start with. If you have notes that you're taking, I'd love for you to write this down. It's that friendship is more give than take. Now, culturally for us today, that's not quite the case in friendship. Um, Popular society tells us to cut out, you know, people that are too needy or, or you know, labeled maybe as toxic, and, and there is some truth to that. Uh, we're not going to get into to kind of what that looks like right now, but what I do know is that today's society, friendship is all about what you can get from a friend, right? What is that friend giving to you? And so today, friendship is much more about take than give. And so I want us to kind of flip that on our head for just a second and think about friendship being more give than take. And now, I'm not just gonna throw out this truth to you and then say, believe it because I believe it. Let's look at what the Bible actually says in this example that we're given. See, friendship requires a couple things, and we see that as we go through this story. And the first thing is probably the hardest thing for us, it's one of the hardest things for me as a friend, is that friendship requires vulnerability. We have to be vulnerable. We have to disclose ourselves to people in order to be a friend. You truly can't be a friend with someone you don't know, and someone can't be your friend if they don't really know you. They could be nice to you. They could be cordial to you. They can maybe do things for you, but the true essence of friendship rests in vulnerability. It rests in this self-disclosure. You allowing yourself to be open to someone else. And that's very difficult. Because oftentimes when we let people in, they let us down. Oftentimes when we expose ourselves to friendship, 
we find that our friends are more take than give. And that's not fun. It's not easy. And I can't tell you that there's like this secret formula for how to make sure that you don't get hurt in friendship. It just doesn't exist. What does exist is God's example of what friendship looks like, and it starts with vulnerability. I'm new to the city of Seattle. I've been here almost a year, uh, and I'm so thankful that you guys from Seattle invited me to preach on the day that is the hottest day on the face of the earth. That makes me feel like I'm back at home in Texas. Um, But in Texas and in Seattle, friendship uh, is a little different. Um, Here in Seattle, friends friends, uh, are sometimes hard to come by. Not everybody is just looking to open themselves up and to give and give and give. Now, in Texas, friendship seems a little easier, but true, deep, meaningful friendship, because everyone is so open, because everyone is so nice uh, to your face, Friendship kind of sometimes tends to be a little more shallow there. Um, But here in Seattle, as I'm trying to make friends, I'm realizing that not everybody's just ready to open up and tell lives and share with each other. So when I think of what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in the city of Seattle, I feel like us leading the way with being vulnerable could be a way that we are countercultural and we get to change the city. Being here in a place that, is, that t- tends to isolate. Feels like the city of Seattle has really enjoyed some of the isolation of, uh, you know, of this current lockdown. Feels like people have used this as an excuse to not connect. Because it feels comfortable. If I'm not connecting, I'm not getting hurt. So what if we, as the people of God, those that are Christ followers, what if we led the way? What if we were the ones who said, I will start with vulnerability? If you're wondering how to make friends, that's the best way to start, is by being vulnerable, disclosing yourself. And we see that in the first verse of chapter 20. It says this, that David fled from Naoth in Ramah and came to Jonathan and asked, what have I done? What did I do wrong? How have I sinned against your father so that he wants to take my life? David is coming in a place of vulnerability. He's telling Jonathan, hey, I'm scared. See, where, where David just was, was with the prophet Samuel. David was protected by God. In fact, David had been promised to be the next king of Israel. So if David was truly following God at this point, he wouldn't be afraid of Saul because he would believe in God's promise that he would be king. But from the get-go, David is being vulnerable with his friend Jonathan. I'm scared. I'm running because I'm afraid. And I'm not just afraid, I'm afraid of your dad. So he comes to the one person that he thinks will be on his side, Jonathan. David continues to be vulnerable in verse eight when he says this. Deal kindly with your servant, For you have brought me into a covenant with you before the Lord. If I have done anything wrong, then kill me yourself. Why take me to your father? So David continues this vein of vulnerability. He says, not only deal kindly with me, which we'll talk about what that means in just a second, but then he says, search me. David would go on to write a song That he would say, search my heart, O God, and find anything within me that is not of you. 
And this is a vein in David's life. He invites Jonathan to look at him, to examine his actions, to examine his heart and say, hey, is there anything that I've done wrong? If there's something, let me know. I'll let you kill me. You don't even have to bring me to your father. Vulnerability is a starting place for friendship. And it's beautiful. Now, in a, just a kind of cursory reading of, of the text, we might not understand what David is actually saying in the beginning of verse 8 here, but when we look a little deeper, this, this term, deal kindly, is actually more of a plea for mercy. And it's a plea for mercy from a subordinate to a superior. So David has been promised to be the next chosen king. But God did not put him in that position right away. That position was filled by Saul. Saul's son, the prince, is Jonathan, who David is talking to. And so David, because he's a man who follows God, understands, even though someday I will be king, I am still subordinate to Jonathan because God had placed Saul on the throne. God had ordained that Saul would have a son named Jonathan, and then that, so that authority still stays. And so David continues to act according to what God had already put in place, and he says, hey, I am your servant. Please have mercy on me. Be kind to me. And it's going to be really interesting because we're going to see Jonathan flip this around in a little bit. But guys, this is a, a moment where David is putting his, his life in Jonathan's hands. David is literally saying, hey, if I've done something wrong, you can kill me. And we're going to see in a second, Jonathan do the same thing, put his life in David's hands. Vulnerability is a great place to start with friendship. The next thing that friendship requires is promise-keeping. Now, this is, seems like a duh, right? Like, yeah, we should all keep our promises, but let's be really honest with each other. How good are we, personally, I don't, not, don't look at your neighbor, don't look at your wife or your husband or your friend that's sitting next to you, don't look at your brother or sister. Think of yourself, how good are you truly at keeping promises? When you say something, how often do we fail to follow through with them? I know for me, it's something that I wish I was better at, Hey, I'll give you a call. Hey, let's get together. Hey, we'll do this. I'll do that. I'll never do that. Oh, you know, I tell my wife constantly, I'm, you know, I'm going to be less grumpy when you wake me up from a nap. It never happens. I fail to keep my promises often. It's human nature. But friendship requires keeping our promises. When you say you will be there for someone, that can't just be words. It has to be actions. When you tell them, I would never do X, I would never say this about you, I would never whatever, or I will always, we have to be honest. And we have to keep those promises. And we see this happen in verse 13. In verse 13, we're reminded of a covenant that David and Jonathan were put into a couple chapters before. Jonathan pledged himself to David, and that allegiance was really 
kind of scandalous because David at this point was being declared an enemy of Saul. Saul was saying, David, you're my enemy. I'm going to kill you. And Jonathan still pledges himself to David. So verse 13 says this, If my father intends to bring evil on you, may God punish Jonathan and do so severely if I do not tell you and send you away so you may leave safely. May the Lord be with you just as he was with my father. If I continue to live, show me kindness from the Lord. But if I die, don't ever withdraw your kindness from my household. Not even when the Lord cuts off every one of David's enemies from the face of the earth. And then Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord hold David's enemies accountable. Jonathan once again swore to David in his love for him because he loved him as himself. So here, what, what is happening is Jonathan says, okay, I don't think my dad is actually going to kill you because what we, maybe if we were following along with the story, last week we kind of, what stuck in my mind was that three times Saul had sent assassins after David, right? So it seems like, like Jonathan should know, like, hey, he wants to kill you. But... Right before he, Saul sends these assassins, he actually makes a promise to Jonathan. He says, you know what? I'm not going to kill David. I, you know, you convinced me, Jonathan. He's a good guy. I'll leave him alone. So what we kind of understand is that Saul probably sent these groups of assassins in secret and kept them from Jonathan because he knew that Jonathan and David were friends. So Jonathan comes with the last thing in his mind being, hey, my dad says he's not going to kill you. Don't worry about it. David knows better. And instead of David just kind of, you know, saying, well, hey, your dad sent all these assassins against me, David says, let's work out a plan. Let's see what's going to happen. But because of what's about to happen, because Jonathan knows, I am not going to be the next king of Israel. You are David. He asked David to make him a promise. He asked David that when everything goes down, when you are king and I am not, will you please spare my family? Will you please spare my life? Again, that seems like a duh moment. But if we think about it, all Jonathan would have to do, if David took the throne, all Jonathan would have to do is get a group of people that believed that he was the rightful heir to the throne. And he could raise an army, and legally he could then try to take the throne back. So Jonathan knows that the best course of action for David is to kill him. The best course of action for David to secure the promise of God that David will be king and that his reign will last forever is for David to wipe out the family of Saul. So Jonathan says, keep me this promise. I will keep my promise to you to tell you if my dad thinks that you are, that you are his enemy and he wants to do evil towards you. I'm just asking that you keep your promise to me. These two promises kind of have to go hand in hand, right? If, if Jonathan keeps his promise, David really should keep his. And both of their lives are put in each other's hands. David, please, don't kill my family. Don't kill me after this happens. Jonathan, please let me know if your father is coming after me. 
So promise keeping is an essential part of being a friend. Then as we move on, we see that advocacy is this next thing that is required in friendship. Now, why do I say that? Well, uh, guys, sometimes we got to speak up for our friends. We're living in a society where social change is happening very quickly. And a lot of that is centered around someone having to speak up for somebody else. Because something is being done unjustly to a group or to a, you know, a certain person. And we are encouraged to speak up for that group that has no power. And here we are, we're going to see Jonathan do just that. Advocate for his friend. How often do we sometimes fail to advocate for our friends? I know that in high school I was the worst about this. I was, was friends with lots of different groups of people, and not all of those groups got along. The, the groups that really were the two most separate was I was an athlete, I loved to, to play sports, and I was in that athletic crowd, and I also loved music, so you know, those you know, kind of outsider people, right? You know, I was a drummer, and I loved doing that, but I had my athlete friends, and I had my drummer friends, my music friends. Those two groups of people didn't mix very often, and they really didn't like each other. They would talk about how you know, weird it was that uh, all, you know, all those musician guys were wearing girls' jeans. They didn't make skinny jeans for guys back then, people. It was straight-up girl jeans that you had to buy if you wanted to wear skinny jeans. And then my musician friends would just make fun of these athletes for being dumb and you know, running around with a ball and smashing into each other and you know, guys touching each other on the butts. Like that, they would make fun of the other people, right? That was what happened. And because I was not a great friend, I would just go along with it, right? I would, you know, yeah, man, those girl jeans, dude, buy some real, you know, boot cuts, right? And then I would go over to my, you know, my, my other friends, they'd be like, yeah, how dumb is that? They all go, you know, I bet they don't even know how to speak English. Like, I don't know. Like, I would just go between these two groups of people, and I didn't advocate for the other ones. And it made me a bad friend. And it got me into some situations where people would hear I had said something to or about someone else. My musician friends would say, hey, I, I heard that you had said X, Y, Z, or my athlete friends would say, hey, I heard you had said X, Y, Z. And of course, at that point, because I didn't know Jesus, I would just lie and say, I never said that. But the reality was I knew that I had. Because I didn't understand that advocacy was key to friendship. If your friend need someone to stand for them, you should be that friend. And here in the story, we see David and Jonathan put this plan together where David would not be there for a meal and would wait to see if Saul said something. And when Saul finally does say something, hey, where is David? Jonathan says this lie that they had predetermined that David was going to go back to Bethlehem for a sacrifice. And Saul is enraged. Saul is so enraged that Jonathan stands up and he advocates for his friend. It's in verse 27. It says this, However, the day after the new moon, the second day, David's whew, place... Sorry, I lost my place. That fan is killing me. Uh, <laughs> David's place was still empty. And Saul asked his son Jonathan, Why didn't Jesse's son come to the meal either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, David asked for my permission to go to Bethlehem. He said, please let me go because our clan is holding a sacrifice in the town. 
and my brother has told me to be there. So now, if I have found favor with you, let me go so I can see my brothers. That's why he didn't come to the king's table. Then Saul became angry with Jonathan and shouted, you son of a perverse and rebellious woman. Don't I know that you are siding with Jesse's son to your own shame and to the disgrace of your mother? Every day Jesse's son lives on earth, you and your kingship are not secure. Now send for him and bring him to me. He must die. Jonathan answered his father, why is he to be killed? What has he done? Then Saul threw a spear at Jonathan to kill him. So he knew that his father was determined to kill David. So in the middle of a a very formal dinner, Saul stands up and screams at Jonathan. Not only does he scream at Jonathan, he actually uses a very derogatory term. Now, we don't quite get it here in in the language, but you know, son of a perverse and rebellious woman and the shame of your mother's, uh, some some, uh, translations call it the shame of your mother's nakedness. This is a, a, a very curse word laden type of epitaph that we've got from Saul here. So in front of everyone, Saul is screaming. And Jonathan sticks up for his friend. Jonathan says, what has he done? Because the only thing that David had ever done was slay Goliath and continue to do damage to the Philistines who were the enemies of the Israelites' people. The only thing David had ever done was refuse to take the throne of Saul by force. The only thing that David had ever done was be a loyal subject and a good friend. So instead of Saul giving an answer, Saul does what Saul does best. This is now the fourth time we have seen him do this. He grabs his spear and he throws it to kill someone. Though it, is, it might be his like, favorite move, he's not good at it. He misses every time. He should probably find a different thing to do. But Saul literally throws a spear because he's thrown this three times at David. Now he's throwing it once at Jonathan with the intent to kill. And Jonathan then does not eat for that entire day because he's so sick over the truth of what's going on. But when it came time to step up and speak up for his friend, he did. Advocacy is such an essential part of friendship. Then we see what happens next. Jonathan, knowing that his father now is trying to kill David, he gives David the signal. The signal included, it was something like they would, uh, Jonathan was going to shoot an arrow, he was going to send a servant to go get it, and there were two code words, basically, uh, that Jonathan was going to say, and that would tell David what was going on. If he said that the, the arrows are, are next to you, then you're good. If he said the arrows are beyond you, that means that you need to go. So Jonathan fulfills his promise. He goes, he does the signal, he says the code word. And then he does another thing. He calls the servant back and he gives his servant all of his gear, all of his weapons. And he sends the servant away. And he says, go back to the town. And so this seems like an innocuous detail, but the truth of the matter is that Jonathan is becoming vulnerable again. Jonathan is sending all of his swords away. He doesn't know that David is going to fulfill his promise. He doesn't know that David's going to continue to be a good friend. 
But to show friendship to David, he sends his weapons away, every protection that he has away, and comes to David vulnerable. Once the boy is gone, David comes out from his hiding place and comes and he does this. In verse 41, when the servant had gone, David got up from the south side of the stone of Azale, fell face down to the ground, and paid homage three times. Then he and Jonathan kissed each other and wept with each other, though David wept more. Jonathan then said to David, go in the assurance that the two of us pledged in the name of the Lord when we said, the Lord will be a witness between you and me and between my offspring and your offspring forever. Then David left and Jonathan went to the city. So David does the most vulnerable thing he can. Jonathan comes vulnerable, unprotected. And then David reciprocates, and David actually gets on his knees. And he bows three times to Jonathan. He bows out of respect. He bows out of honor. But I think he bows mostly out of thankfulness. Thank you, Jonathan, for keeping your promise. Thank you for doing what you said you would do. And then we see a very interesting moment in our context and culture. It seems a little uncomfortable to us, but it holds a lot of meaning. We see two, these two friends kiss each other. This is a kiss of affection. See, friendship requires affection. Compassion counts. Affection matters. Today in our society, especially in the last year and a half, affection, especially physical affection, has been very difficult to come by. But think about that first time after the lockdown that you got a hug from a friend. Think about the first time that you got to be with a group of people and say, oh man, I get to shake a hand. I get to hug a neck. I get to, I get to be around people. Affection speaks to us because it's part of being a friend. When a friend is heartbroken, all we want to do is wrap them in our arms and listen. When, when someone is newly married, we want to shower them with love and affection. Being a friend requires constant affection. Why? Because our hearts desire it. Our hearts, our bodies, our souls want affection. We want emotional affection. Not everyone wants physical affection, so make sure you're asking if they would like a hug. But man, nothing beats just a nice hug from someone that you just needed that from. And so here we see two friends sharing this affection. And this affection actually goes beyond the physical affection into an emotional affection where they weep for each other. Now, yes, this is a goodbye of sorts, but there's much more to this weeping. We have to realize the situation. David never wanted to create enmity between Saul and Jonathan. David continually went out of his way to try to make Saul and Jonathan be on the same page. David never wanted enmity between him and Saul. David always 
wanted for him and Saul to be on the same page. But this was kind of the breaking point. This was the point where David and Jonathan know that the relationship with Saul will never be the same again. David and Jonathan know that it will never be okay for David to come into the presence of Saul again. David and Jonathan know that the relationship between himself and his father is broken, possibly beyond repair, because he advocated for his father and he was wrong. He thought his father was dealing with him honestly and he was wrong. He weeps because his relationship is broken with his father and his friend must go away. David weeps because he is the reason that this relationship is broken, and that is affection too. These two friends realize that their lives are altered forever and changed. And it's because of their friendship, it's because of their promise keeping, it's because of their advocacy for each other. And that is hard. In fact, that brings me to my last thing that friendship requires, which is sacrifice. So often, like I said before, we go into friendship looking what we can reap from it. But friendship requires sacrifice. It requires laying down our self-serving nature to serve someone else. In fact, Jonathan, through this action, has given up. He's given up his right to be king. Jonathan has forfeited his future in order to be a friend. Jonathan has shown that what Jesus would say later on, I believe in Matthew, oh, that's wrong, in John, in the biography of Jesus that's told by Jesus' best friend, Jesus says that no greater love has a man. No, greater, no one has greater love than this, to lay down his life for his friends. Man, Jonathan lays down his life for his friends. And these words of Jesus, they ring so deeply inside of us. They ring so deeply inside of us because we see Jonathan, who should be the superior, who has all the power in the relationship, laying down his life for someone who needs mercy and kindness. We see Jonathan stepping literally off his figurative throne in order to give up his life for his friend. That sounds like someone else that I know. It sounds like Jesus. Because guys, here's the deal. Jesus was the ultimate friend. Jesus, God incarnate, stepping off of his throne to give his life for you and for me. Jesus showed friendship in this way. First, he was vulnerable. The writer of Hebrews, a book in what we call the New Testament, 
says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Jesus knows. Jesus became vulnerable for us so that he could go through everything that we would go through. The first ever church planter, a guy named Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, he said this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in the likeness, in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even to death on the cross. Jesus came as a servant, stepping off of his literal throne in heaven to come to earth, not to be served, but to serve. We see Jonathan switch the role. David calls himself, David calls himself Jonathan's servant early on. At the end in verse 42, we see Jonathan call himself David's servant. The writer of Hebrews also said this about Jesus. He said, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Remember we talked about vulnerability, vulnerability being self-disclosure. Jesus is the ultimate self-disclosure of God. Jesus is God's way of coming to you and saying, here, know me even more. I have tried for hundreds and thousands of years to express myself through scripture, through, through stories of men and women following me, but now I'm going to send my son and fully disclose all of your, myself to you. Jesus, the ultimate self-disclosure, the ultimate vulnerability of God. Jesus is a promise keeper. In fact, in his last address, but as he is literally floating up into heaven, which is probably the coolest thing I could think of, Jesus is going to be seated at the right hand of the Father. He says this in Matthew 28. He says that, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus, the promise keeper. Jesus, who sent not only himself, but the Holy Spirit to be with us always. And Jesus is coming again. It's not only that Jesus kept his promise to redeem us. It is also that Jesus kept his promise to return and to never leave us alone. Jesus is an advocate. Again, Jesus' best friend in a letter he wrote to churches said this, my little children, I'm writing to you these things so you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, 
We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He himself is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not only for ours, but also those of the world. Jesus, the advocate for you and for me and for the world. Jesus, one who showed affection. Paul's letter to the Ephesians says this, but because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you have been saved. And ultimately, Jesus showed his friendship in sacrifice. The writer of Hebrews says this, keeping our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith, for the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus being a friend through giving up everything for you and for me. Not only giving up everything, but also advocating for our sin. Not only giving up everything and advocating for our sin, but showing his great love for us. Not only those things, but keeping his promises. And not only those things, but being vulnerable. Jesus was the ultimate friend. See, Jesus lets you in without letting you down. Jesus invites us to be in his family. But he will keep his promise. He will sustain. He will do all of the things that he said he would do. All of the things that the prophets and the law wrote about him. All of the things that the epistles or the, the, new, the early church fathers would write about him. All of those things Jesus would continue to be and fulfill always. And he will continue forever. I think of the parallel between verse 41 in our story where Jonathan and David kiss each other to seal this saving of Jonathan's family and of David with another story of another kiss in a place called the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus allowed one of his best friends to step up to him and kiss him. Now this kiss was not to seal the saving of Jesus. In fact, it was the kiss that would seal his death on a cross. It would, it would seal the condemnation of Jesus. But, just like the kiss would save David and Jonathan's family, this kiss would ultimately allow us to be saved as well. Both stories, the story of Jesus and the story of David and Jonathan, God uses friendship to save us. Because we are invited to be a friend of Jesus. Friendship matters. Being a good friend and being a Christ follower go hand in hand. So I told you that I loved the story of Forrest Gump and Bubba. If you haven't seen the film, first of all, you should, if you're old enough. But there's a scene where Bubba and Forrest are in a battle. And there are bullets flying all over the place. And there's a call for retreat because they are, they are pinned down by their enemies. 
And so every soldier begins their retreat to run out of this jungle, to get to this shore, to hopefully be evacuated by a helicopter. When Forrest gets to the place where he's about to be rescued, he realizes Bubba isn't there. And because of his friendship, he turns around and he says, I gotta get Bubba. And he literally runs back into what is essentially a firing squad. In fact, there's about to be an airstrike by the Americans on the area because the firefight has gotten so bad that they've called in air support. So he knows that doom is coming. He runs towards those who would see him dead to save his friend. And along the way, he stops. Every time he sees someone that is in need, he picks them up and he runs them out. But he continues to go back and continues to go back and he continues to go back because of his friend. No greater love has a man than someone who would lay down their life for a friend. And it's every friend that Forrest rescued, every friend that he went back for. He pulled them all to safety until he finally found the one he was looking for. And as Bubba is laying with leaves over his stomach, Forrest realizes that this is the end of his friend. And Forrest makes a promise. Forrest promises to take care of Bubba's family. And ultimately, Forrest does. Forrest starts the bubblegum shrimp factory, or shrimp, uh, shrimp service, shrimping, I don't know. Shrimp company, that's the word I was looking for. Bubblegum shrimp company. And he gives all the money to Bubba's family because friends keep promises. And I imagine this same thing with Jesus. Jesus running into spiritual warfare, sending the Holy Spirit for you and for me and picking up everyone else along the way. Jesus coming to earth to die on a cross for you and for me because Jesus is the ultimate I hope that we can be friends like Jesus. I hope we can be friends who keep their promises and who sacrifice for one another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your friendship. I thank you for your sacrifice, for your vulnerability, for your advocacy and for your affection and for your promise keeping to us. Lord, you're so good. God, I pray that your friendship would push us to be better friends. That we would be better friends to each other. That we would be better friends to you. That we would be better friends to our community. Or that we would take your example of friendship and we would play it out in our daily lives. Lord, I pray that I would be a man who keeps his promises. That I would be someone who people can look to and say, that is what a friend looks like. And that ultimately I can point to the friend that we have in Jesus and say this is how I know how to be a friend. In Jesus' name, we love you, Lord. Amen.